Today's topic is morality in healthcare. We will look first into the structure of healthcare system, look at the providers of health services and uh, consumers. Uh, we'll look into mechanism for financing and supporting the healthcare institutions. We will examine the values and interests that coexist and often clash within the healthcare system. And we will then focus on the four principles of biomedical ethics that govern the functioning of healthcare. These principles are respect for autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence and justice. So let us proceed to examine the structure of healthcare system. In the advanced technological societies, the healthcare system has grown to become a major social institution and an important part of the economy. It is a reflection of the achievement of a society and an indicator of what problems there may be as far as basic quality of life is concerned. Poor healthcare and poor quality of life often associated with one another. Any consideration of moral dilemmas must take into account the more general background within which situations and problems arise and within which they must be confronted and handled. There are two basic sides to healthcare system, the providers and the consumers. The providers include uh, medical institutions, physicians, nurses, professional associations, drug suppliers, and so on. Whereas the consumers are patients, their family members, and uh, various companies and institutions. Healthcare system is structured according to complexity and severity of health challenges that are addressed at various levels, as well as the nature of patient-provider relationship. Contemporary approach distinguishes up to four levels of healthcare. Primary care is the first level of care that patients receive and is focused on patient wellness and the prevention of severe health conditions. Primary care providers are typically patients' first point of contact when they have medical concerns or needs. The relationship between patient and provider is also much longer term in primary care settings as opposed to other levels, uh, with providers often following a patient's development and medical history for several years. Primary care is often delivered in the so-called outpatient settings, that is, outside the medical institutions, as this type of low-level care and consultations provided to patients do not require hospitalization. Medical practitioners who typically work in primary care settings include family doctors, adult primary care um, medical professionals, and pediatric primary care medical professionals. Secondary care is more specialized and focuses on helping patients who are struggling with more severe or complex health conditions, requiring the support of a specialist. Secondary care is typically delivered in so-called inpatient settings, meaning in medical institutions, and is best defined as care for patients who require intensive specialist care but whose vital signs are stable. Examples of medical situations needing secondary care services include cancer treatment, 
medical care for pneumonia and other severe and sudden infections, and care for broken limbs. Tertiary care is another form of specialized care that is a level above secondary care in that it involves supporting patients who are encountering life-threatening illnesses and whose vitals are not stabilized. Tertiary care is delivered in settings such as the intensive care unit or ICU, emergency room, trauma, organ transplant, and critical care units. In some countries, the term quaternary care is sometimes used to denote an extension of tertiary care in reference to advanced level of medicine, which are highly specialized and technically complex. Two mechanisms exist for financing healthcare system. One is direct payment, the other is insurance programs, which are publicly and privately established. So this brief description hopefully sets the stage on which the interaction and collision of different values and interests occurs in medicine. Let us now look at the definitions of values and interests. We can define values as intangible standards or principles which give meaning to our lives and guide our behavior and choices. Generally, values are not to be attained in full. They rather have a regulative or guiding role. As opposed to values, interests are particular and concrete. They excite our capacity for desire and set our action in motion. Interests are achievable or attainable, and our life can be seen as a structured tree or pattern of interests that we try to organize into a coherent life plan within the bounds set by our values. Another important philosophical definition that we need in talking about healthcare ethics is the one between means and ends. An end is something that you wish for itself or something that has an intrinsic value, not definable in terms of other concepts. A means is something that we use to achieve an end. A very common and basic error occurring in our decision-making is mistaking a means for an end. For example, taking money to be the end in itself, and not a means, albeit a very efficient one, to achieve other ends. So our structured life plan of interest within the bounds of values can be represented as a tree of means leading to ends. In this structure, there are means to means that lead to other means to attain some final ends. For example, our doing a job is a means to obtaining money, which is a means to achieving the end of happiness of the people we love. So these are the basics. And they do come into play on the stage of healthcare system and medical situations, which of course have powerful impact on our capacity to set ends and choose means for our capacity to have structured life plans and for our hopes of bringing them to reality. In today's world, Humanity is often taken to be the final end, which is the end in itself. Without going too far into the roots of this approach, it suffices to say that 
humanity as an end is a staple of today's declarations, conventions, medical protocols and ethical codes. Humanity in other persons is not to be utilized as mere means, but always taken to be as an end. This is of course a famous principle of Kant's philosophy. To understand the meaning of the concept of humanity, we need to look at the four closely connected concepts, those of freedom, dignity, privacy and autonomy. We've already covered the philosophical complexities of the idea of freedom and free will. But in the context of humanity, freedom means our highly cherished ability to make decisions and act upon them in realizing our life plans. So we bracket our philosophical doubts regarding free will and understand by freedom our human capacity to act or not to act as we choose or prefer without any external compulsion or restraint since sufficient health is prerequisite to making life choices. It is expected that within the healthcare system personal freedom is to be taken as an end, not as a means. The idea of dignity is closely connected to that of freedom. To accord humans a sense of worth or esteem is to respect their dignity. Dignity is earned by each individual. Others can recognize, promote, support and encourage those actions by virtue of which a human is thought to be dignified. But dignity cannot be imposed upon a person. It is a personal choice. Persons earn in what ways they attain this dignity. This is where the connection to freedom comes into play. So dignity can be harmed or even removed entirely from a person if such persons are not permitted to make decisions concerning their own lives or their own good or to carry out these decisions into actions. It is expected that healthcare is not to be an obstacle to realizing human dignity. Quite contrary, it is one of the most important tools that we possess in advancing or at least maintain our capacity to pursue our own dignity. The idea of privacy is closely connected to that of dignity and that of freedom. Privacy means that individuals need and desire to have some space for reflecting and making decisions without being hampered by outside factors. The emphasis on privacy is essential to Western modernity. In fact, many trace the roots of this modern condition to the point when the spheres of the public and the private were separated in 16th-17th century Europe. Initially this happened because of the religious wars that were fought between the Protestants and the Catholics and the requirement to have a space where religious rights could be exercised. This privacy was connected with the freedom of conscience or religious belief. Over the following centuries the scope of privacy has expanded to cover other areas of human life. It is important to note that the conceptions of privacy vary greatly across cultures. These underlying values of healthcare lead to what came to be known as four principles of bioethics. These principles are respect for autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence and justice. Let us 
look at them in more detail. The word autonomy is derived from the Greek autos, self, and nomos, laws, rules, or governance. It originally referred to the self-rule or self-governance of independent city-states in ancient Greece. Autonomy has since been extended to individuals. The autonomous individual acts freely in accordance with the self-chosen plan, analogous to the way an autonomous government manages its territories and sets its policies. In contrast, a person of diminished autonomy is substantially controlled by others or is incapable of deliberating or acting on the basis of his or her desires and plans. For example, cognitively impaired individuals and prisoners often have diminished autonomy. Mental incapacitation limits the autonomy of a person with a severe mental handicap and incarceration constrains a prisoner's autonomy. Two general conditions are essential for autonomy. First is liberty, independence from controlling influences. And second is agency, capacity for intentional action. However, disagreement exists over the precise meaning of these two conditions and over whether additional conditions are required for autonomy. Without going further into philosophical complications, let us rely on the basic conditions of liberty and agency to construct an understanding of autonomy and then the understanding of respect for autonomy. Agency is arguably more basic component of autonomy. It is a set of skills or traits of autonomous persons which include capacities of uh, understanding, reasoning, deliberating, managing and independent choosing. Medical conditions often do impair these capacities. These detrimental effects on the inner capacities for deliberation and choice often lead to the restrictions imposed upon outer capacity to exercise liberty or do what is willed. If a person's capacities for autonomy are hampered, according to this person, full liberty can place this person and or other people at risk. Evaluating these conditions and measuring these limitations is an important task of medical professionals. This is where the principle of maximum respect for autonomy becomes an imperative. So basic understanding of agency is needed. A common approach to human inner autonomy or agency is to present it as the capacity to reflectively control and identify with or choose one's basic or first-order desires or preferences through higher-level second-order desires or preferences. This inner autonomy or agency can be defined as second-order capacity of persons to reflect critically upon their first-order preferences, desires, wishes, and so forth, and the capacity to accept or attempt to change these in the light of higher-order preferences and values. Now this might sound philosophically complex, but consider a simple example of an alcoholic who has a desire to drink, but also has a higher-order desire to stop drinking. If the higher-order desire to stop drinking prevails, then we can say that our person exercises autonomy. 
This opposition of lower order and higher order desires is often framed in terms of animal and human impulses or motives. This theory is problematic because the difference between the lower level and higher level desires is hard to explain. We can reflectively accept as a second order or higher order desire something from a lower order. Consider again the example of an alcoholic. This alcoholic's desire to drink can become a higher order priority to which all other lower levels desires are subordinated. Within the framework of the theory that we are considering, nothing prevents us from according to our alcoholic full autonomy. While this approach to autonomy remains a hotly debated issue in philosophy, it doesn't seem particularly appropriate or practical in medical situations. So let us instead consider a non-ideal theory of autonomy, which nevertheless seems more suitable for our purposes. Let us take as autonomous actions of those people who act First, intentionally. Second, with understanding. And third, without controlling influences that determine their action. Let us examine these three components. Intentional actions require plans in the form of representations of the series of events proposed for the execution of an action. For an act to be intentional, it must correspond to the actor's conception of the act in question, although a planned outcome might not materialize as projected. Nothing about intentional acts rules out actions that an agent wishes he or she did not have to perform. Our motivation often involves conflicting wants and desires, but this fact does not render an action less than intentional or autonomous. Foreseen but undesired outcomes can be part of a coherent plan of intentional action. Understanding is the second condition of autonomous action. An action is not autonomous if the actor does not adequately understand it. Conditions that limit understanding include illness, irrationality and immaturity. Deficiencies in a communication process also can hamper understanding. An autonomous action needs only a substantial degree of understanding, not a full understanding. To restrict adequate decision-making by patients and research subjects to the ideal of fully or completely autonomous decision-making strips their actions of a meaningful place in the practical world, where people's actions are rarely, if ever, fully autonomous. The third of the three conditions of autonomous action is that a person be free of controls exerted either by the external sources or by internal states that rob the person of self-directedness. Influence and resistance to influence are basic concepts in this analysis. Not all influences exerted on another person are controlling. Examples of controlling influences are coercion and manipulation. We can differentiate between external controlling influences, usually those of one person on another, and internal influences, on the person, such as those caused by a mental illness. The first of the three conditions of autonomy, namely intentionality, is not a matter of degree. Acts are either intentional or non-intentional. 
This is not so with understanding and absence of controlling influence. These common degrees. Our understanding of our situation is always limited, to lesser or greater extent. Also relative is the absence of control over our action from outside factors. What this means is that autonomy always comes in degrees, and it becomes the task of a decision maker, a medical professional, to evaluate this degree. So much for autonomy. Let us now look at what it means to respect one's autonomy. To respect autonomous agents is to acknowledge their right to hold views, to make choices, and to take actions based on their values and beliefs. Respect is shown through respectful action, not merely by a respectful attitude. The principle of respect for autonomy requires more than non-interference in others' personal affairs. In some contexts, it includes building up or maintaining others' capacities for autonomous choice, while helping to allay fears and other conditions that destroy or disrupt autonomous action. Respect involves acknowledging the value and decision-making rights of autonomous persons and enabling them to act autonomously, whereas disrespect for autonomy involves attitudes and actions that ignore, insult, demean or are inattentive to others' rights or of autonomous action. The principle of respect for autonomy asserts broad obligations in the form such as we must respect individuals' views and rights except when their thoughts and actions seriously harm other persons. Acceptive conditions should appear in specifications of the principle, not in the principle itself. However, the principle should be analyzed as containing both a negative obligation and a positive obligation. As a negative obligation, the principle of respect for autonomy requires that autonomous actions not be subjected to controlling constraints by others. As a positive obligation, the principle requires both respectful disclosures of information and other actions that foster autonomous decision-making. Respect for autonomy obligates professionals in healthcare and research involving human subjects to disclose information, to probe for and ensure understanding and volunteerness, and to foster adequate decision-making. These negative and positive sides of respect for autonomy support more specific moral rules. In the presentation you'll find a small list of examples, which is by no means exhaustive. Among these examples is the requirement to tell the truth and respect the privacy of others, the requirement to protect confidential information, the requirement to obtain consent for interventions with patients. It is important to understand that competing moral considerations sometimes can override the principle of respect for autonomy. Examples of such situations include the following. If our autonomous choices endanger the public health, potentially harm innocent others, or require a scarce resource for which no funds are available, others can justifiably restrict our exercises of autonomy. Obligations to respect autonomy do not extend to persons who cannot act in a sufficiently autonomous manner, and to those who cannot be rendered autonomous because they are immature, incapacitated, ignorant, coerced, exploited, and so on. Infants, irrationally suicidal individuals, and drug-dependent patients are examples. 
This standpoint does not presume that these individuals are not owed moral respect or should not be treated with dignity. So much for autonomy. Let us move on to the principle of non-maleficence. The principle of non-maleficence obligates us to abstain from causing harm to others. This principle has been recognized since the ancient times. The famous Hippocratic Oath contains an expression of this principle. I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but I will never use it to injure or wrong them. The principle of non-maleficence is relevant to the distinctions between killing and allowing to die, intending and foreseeing harmful outcomes, withholding and withdrawing life-sustaining treatments, as well as to controversies about the permissibility of physicians assisting seriously ill patients in bringing about their deaths. The principle of non-maleficence is also relevant to the moral problems in the protection of incompetent patients through advanced directives and surrogate decision-makers, as well as special issues in decision-making about children. The principle of non-maleficence is closely related to and sometimes confused with the principle of beneficence. The difference is in the negative character of the principle of non-maleficence. It is prohibiting in nature. We can rephrase it as follows. One ought not to inflict evil or harm upon other persons. On the contrast, the principle of beneficence can be rephrased as follows. One ought to prevent evil or harm. One ought to do or promote good. As you can see from the formulations, this is a positive requirement or positive duty. The principle of beneficence requires taking actions by helping, whereas the principle of non-maleficence requires only intentional avoidance of actions that cause harm. Some philosophers also maintain that the principle of non-maleficence is stricter or more stringent than the principle of beneficence, in the sense that the least we can do is not to inflict harm on other people, and this is what we absolutely have to do. Whereas the requirements of beneficence build upon this initial requirement of non-maleficence. Some philosophers differentiate between harm and injury, but we'll take them as synonyms. The term harm has both a normative and a non-normative use. X harmed Y sometimes means that X wronged Y or treated Y unjustly, but it sometimes only means that X's action had an adverse effect on Y's interests. As we use these notions, wronging involves violating someone's rights, but harming need not signify such violation. People are harmed without being wronged through attacks by disease, natural disasters, bad luck, and other kinds of natural evil. People can also be wronged without being harmed. For example, if an insurance company improperly refuses to pay a patient's hospital bill, the insurance company wrongs the patient without harming him or her. So let us define harm as follows. A harm is thwarting, defeating, or setting back of some party's interests, but a harmful action is not always wrong or unjustified. Harmful actions that involve justifiable setbacks to another's interests are not wrong. For example, justified amputation of a consenting patient's leg, justified punishment of physicians for incompetence or negligence, 
justified demotion of employees for poor performance and some forms of research involving animals. Nevertheless, the principle of non-maleficence requires the justification of harmful actions. This justification may come from showing that the harmful actions do not infringe specific ob obligations of uh, non-maleficence or that the infringements are outweighed by other ethical principles and rules. Some definitions of harm are so broad that they include setbacks of, to interests in reputation, property, privacy and liberty, or in, in the writings of some philosophers, discomfort, humiliation and annoyance. Such a broad conception can still distinguish trivial harms from serious harms by the magnitude of the interests affected. Other accounts with a narrower focus view harms exclusively as setbacks to physical and psychological interests, such as those in health and survival, although the latter seem to be more relevant to the medical situations. We also increasingly have to be aware of the former. Just like the principle of respect for autonomy, the principle of non-maleficence supports several more specific moral rules, although principles other than non-maleficence help justify some of these rules. Here are some examples. Do not kill. Do not cause pain or suffering. Do not incapacitate. Do not cause offense. Just like with the principle of respect for autonomy, this list is by no means exhaustive. Importantly, the obligations of non-maleficence include not only obligations not to inflict harms, but also obligations not to impose risks of harms. A person can harm or place another person at risk without malicious or harmful intent, and the agent of harm may or may not be morally or legally responsible for the harm. In some cases, agents are causally responsible for harm that they did not intend or know about. For example, if cancer rates are elevated at a chemical plant as the result of exposure to a chemical not previously suspected as a carcinogen, the employer has placed its workers at risk by its decisions or actions even though the employer did not intentionally or knowingly cause the harm. In cases of risk imposition, both law and morality recognize a standard of due care that determines whether the agent who is causally responsible for the risk is legally or morally responsible as well. This standard is a specification of the principle of non-maleficence. Due care is taking appropriate care to avoid causing harm as the circumstances demand of a reasonable and prudent person. This standard requires that the goals pursued justify the risks that must be imposed to achieve those goals. Serious emergencies justify risks that many non-emergency situations do not justify. For example, attempting to save lives after a major accident justifies, within limits, dangers created by rapidly moving emergency vehicles. A person who takes due care in this context does not violate moral or legal rules, even if significant risk for other parties is inherent in the attempted rescue. Negligence falls short of due care. In professions, negligence involves a departure from the professional standards that determine due care in given circumstances. 
The term negligence covers two types of situations. First, intentionally imposing unreasonable risks of harm. And second, unintentionally but carelessly imposing risks of harm. These are known as advertent negligence or recklessness and inadvertent negligence. In the first type, an agent knowingly imposes an unwanted risk. For example, a nurse knowingly fails to change a bandage as scheduled, creating an increased risk of infection. In the second type, an agent unknowingly performs a harmful act that he or she should have known to avoid. For example, a physician acts negligently if he or she knows but forgets that a patient does not want to receive certain types of information and discloses that information. Both types of negligence are morally blameworthy, although some conditions may mitigate blameworthiness. For a negligent act to occur, four principles have to be in place. First, the professional must have a duty to the affected party. Second, the professional must breach that duty. Third, the affected party must experience a harm. And fourth, the harm must be caused by the breach of duty. Professional malpractice is an instance of negligence that involves failure to follow professional standards of care. By entering into the profession of medicine, Physicians accept the responsibility to observe the standards specific to their profession. When a therapeutic relationship proves harmful or unhelpful, malpractice occurs if and only if physicians do not meet professional standards of care. The line between due care and inadequate care is sometimes difficult to draw. Increased safety measures in epidemiological and toxicological studies educational and health promotional programs, and other training programs can sometimes reduce health risks. However, a substantial question remains about the lengths to which physicians, employers, and others must go to avoid or to lower risks, a moral problem of determining the scope of obligations of non-maleficence. A very important situation when the principle of non-maleficence comes into play is the decisions of non-treatment. The debate about the principle of non-maleficence and foregoing life-sustaining treatments has centered on the omission-commission distinction, especially the distinction between withholding or not starting and withdrawing or stopping treatments. Many professionals and family members feel justified in withholding treatments they never started but not in withdrawing treatments already initiated. They sense that decisions to stop treatments are more momentous, consequential and morally fraught than decisions not to start treatment. Stopping a respirator, for example, seems to many to cause a person's death, whereas not starting the respirator does not seem to have this same causal role. In many cases, caregiver's discomfort about withdrawing life-sustaining treatments appears to reflect the view that such actions render them causally responsible and morally or legally culpable for a patient's death, whereas they are not responsible if they never initiate a life-sustaining treatment. The conviction 
that starting a treatment often creates valid claims or expectations for its continuation is another source of caregiver discomfort. Only if patients waive the claim for continued treatment does it seem legitimate to many caregivers to stop procedures. Otherwise, stopping procedures appears to breach expectations, promises or contractual obligations to the patient, family or surrogate decision maker. Patients for whom physicians have not initiated treatment seem to hold no parallel claim. Feelings of reluctance about withdrawing treatments are understandable, but the distinction between withdrawing and withholding treatments is morally irrelevant and potentially dangerous. The distinction is unclear inasmuch as withdrawing can happen through an omission, such as not recharging batteries that power respirators or not putting the infusion into the feeding tube. In multi-stage treatments, decisions not to start the next stage of a treatment plan can be tantamount to stopping treatment, even if the early phases of the treatment continue. Both not starting and stopping can be justified, depending on the circumstances. Both can be instances of allowing to die, and both can be instances of killing. Courts recognize that individuals can commit a crime by omission if they have an obligation to act, just as physicians can commit a wrong by omission in medical practice. Such judgments depend on whether a physician has an obligation either not to withhold or not to withdraw treatment. In these cases, if a physician has a duty to treat, omission to treatment breaches this duty, whether or not withholding or withdrawing is involved. However, if a physician does not have a duty to treat or has a duty not to treat, omission of either type involves no moral violation. Indeed, if the physician has a duty not to treat, it would be morally wrong to start the treatment or to continue the treatment if it had already begun. Finally, for our discussion of non-maleficence, let us look at the difference between killing and letting die. The distinction between killing and letting die, or allowing to die, is the most difficult and the most important of all the distinctions that have been used to determine acceptable decisions about treatment of seriously ill or injured patients. This distinction has long been invoked in public discourse, in laws, medicine and moral philosophy, to distinguish appropriate and inappropriate ways for death to occur. Killing has been widely viewed as morally wrong and letting die as morally acceptable. A large body of distinctions and rules about life-sustaining treatments derives from the killing-letting-die distinction, which in turn draws on the act-omission and active-passive distinctions. For instance, the killing-letting-die distinction has affected distinctions between suicide, including assisted suicide, and foregoing treatment and between homicide and natural death. The problem is that it is impossible to define killing and letting die so that there is no conceptual overlap. Can we legitimately describe actions that involve intentionally not treating a patient as allowing to die or letting die rather than killing? Do at least some of these actions involve both killing and allowing to die? 
he's allowing to die an euphemism in some cases for acceptable killing or acceptable ending of life. These conceptual questions all have moral implications, and all of these questions are difficult to answer. Unfortunately for us, both ordinary discourse and legal concepts are vague and equivocal. In ordinary language, killing is a causal action that brings about death, whereas letting die is an intentional avoidance of causal intervention so that disease, system failure or injury can cause death. This goes for the English language. It is somewhat different, uh, for example, in Russian, but still, the meanings of these words are far from being clear. Killing extends to animal and planet life. Neither in ordinary language nor in law does the word killing entail a wrongful act or a crime, or even an intentional action. For example, we can say properly that in automobile accident, one driver killed another even when no awareness, intent or negligence was present. This brings us to a conclusion that conventional definitions are unsatisfactory for drawing a sharp distinction between killing and letting die. They allow many acts of letting die to count as killing, thereby defeating the point of the distinction. For example, under these definitions, health professionals kill patients when they intentionally let them die in circumstances in which they have a duty to keep the patients alive. It is unclear in literature on the subject how to distinguish killing from letting die so as to avoid even simple cases that satisfy the conditions of both killing and letting die. The meanings of killing and letting die are so vague and inherently contestable that attempts to refine their meanings likely will produce controversy without closure. Letting die is generally acceptable in medicine under one of two conditions. First, a medical technology is useless in the strict sense of medical futility. Second, patients or their authorized surrogates have validly refused a medical technology. That is, letting a patient die is acceptable if and only if it satisfies the condition of futility or the condition of a valid refusal of treatment. If neither of these conditions is satisfied, then letting a patient die constitutes killing, perhaps by negligence. An important case where the distinction between killing and letting die comes into play is the case of foregoing life-sustaining treatment. Many writers in medicine, law and ethics have construed a physician's intentional foregoing of a medical technology as letting die if and only if an underlying disease or injury causes death. When physicians withhold or withdraw medical technology, according to this interpretation, a natural death occurs because natural conditions do what they would have done if the physicians had never initiated the technology. By contrast, a killing occurs when acts of persons rather than natural conditions cause death. From this perspective, one acts non-maleficently in allowing to die and maleficently in killing, whatever one's motives may be. Although this view is influential in law and medicine, it is flawed. To attain a satisfactory account, we must add that the foregoing of the medical technology is validly authorized and for this reason justified. 
If the physician's foregoing of technology were unjustified and a person died from natural causes of injury or disease, the result would be unjustified killing, not justified allowing to die. The validity of authorization determines the moral acceptability of the action. For example, withdrawing treatment from a competent patient is not morally justifiable unless the patient has made an informed decision authorizing this withdrawal. If a physician removes a respirator from a competent patient who needs it and wants to continue its use, the action is wrong, even though the physician has only removed artificial life support and let nature take its course. The lack of authorization by the patient is the relevant consideration in assessing the act as unacceptable, not the distinction between letting die and killing. This emphasis on valid authorization allows us to forego the philosophical complications involved in differentiating between killing and letting die. This ends our present discussion of healthcare and its two first principles, those of respect for autonomy and non-maleficence. In the next piece we'll move on to the other two principles of beneficence and justice. Please stay tuned. <laughs>